so my name is Farah Curl, and I'm one of the co-directors of Theology, Medicine, Culture with Dr. Kinghorn. Um, and we're delighted to have Dr. Richard Payne, uh, one of our colleagues and friends and mentors, speaking to us today. Dr. Payne is the uh, recently retired, so now emeritus, uh, Esther Cauliflower professor in the Divinity School, where for more than a, more than a decade, mm -hmm. uh, he directed the Institute on Care at the End of Life. Uh, did a lot of innovative research, um, policy work, um, as well as a, a lot of equipping of churches and other so, um, community institutions to to understand well how healthcare works for those who are dying and to, to navigate that well. Um, Dr. Payne is kind of the man with respect to pain, which is an interesting confluence there. Um, he has uh, had been uh, a professor at Indy Anderson um, and also held a chair at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering, the two premier sites, for, for those of you who know about this, for cancer research and treatment in the United States before coming to Duke. And he still holds the John B. Francis Chair in Practical Bioethics uh, at the Center for Practical Bioethics at, in uh, Kansas City. So a lot of hats, a lot of experience on national committees, including um, still still involved in the National Academy of Sciences. You've been part of Institute on Medicine things too, mm -hmm. yeah. But I won't I won't belabor this any further. Dr. Payne, glad to have you, and he's going to speak to us about playing God. Yeah, playing God. Hi, how are you guys? <laughs> uh, and we have like uh, 50 minutes, right? So yeah, well, we, we end we, at one. We we end at usually one fifteen, but yeah. let people go at one. And okay. We can go. Okay. So, um, right, so I, I mean, my <laughs> moorings and, and foundation in medicine is in neurology and neuro-oncology, and from there I kind of evolved into pain and palliative care as a byproduct of caring for uh, people with serious uh, neurological complications of cancer. Uh, in the last several years, I've trying to been navigating the world of uh, bioethics and healthcare, and um, the hat that I, I also wear that Far didn't mention, but which is most relevant to what I'm going to talk to you today about, and hopefully engage you in a conversation today. That hat is as a member of the board of directors of the Hastings Bioethics Center. Hastings was uh, the first, uh, really the first bioethics center uh, in the U.S. Uh, created its freestanding center in the 1960s and really created the model for academic uh, bioethics centers that now have proliferated in all the major universities and academic medical centers. Uh, as a member of the Hastings board, uh, I've, I've you know been able been had the opportunity to interact with their scholars and heard several speakers come through and participate in several projects, including a, um, you know a project to I didn't participate but uh, been able to uh, hear about it a project that they are doing in conjunction with the museum American Museum of Natural History on the ethics of uh, de-extinction, bringing species back to life uh, through uh, use of genomics, and a big project looking at the, the 
nature and the created world and the proper role of uh, medicine and healthcare and uh, in that sphere. And in that context, I have a few slides that I'm hopefully we'll use just to kind of prompt some discussion here. In that context, um, um, I was able, I participated in, in or attended two conferences. One was on uh, a, a conference that looked at ethics and discussed ethical issues related to the uh, human genome editing revolution. Um, huge issues around um, this powerful <laughs> science and technology and how, what would wise use and appropriate use of this technology look like. And uh, also on um, projects and, and that the scholars are doing in Hastings <coughs> looking at artificial intelligence. I mean, there's been an equally powerful scientific revolution in the whole artificial intelligence realm with these deep learning algorithms and, you know, the advent of, uh, of all kinds of things, including the making of machines which potentially can act and make moral decisions. That is, uh, it, we're now living in a world where, where people are engineering semi-autonomous or fully autonomous vehicles, not just cars, but people are even creating helicopters and airplanes, which actually you can, you can <laughs> create algorithms that these machines will can decide whether to hit one target or another, to steer out of the way of mm -hmm. a child or a dog in the street, mm -hmm. and, um, or not, mm -hmm. right? So that's just one example of, of machines that actually are on this threshold of, ha of making kind of moral decisions. So that raises questions about, uh, raises a whole lot of questions. And for me, raised two questions because in both of those conferences and, and, and in interaction with the, uh, with the participants, this phrase kept coming up over and over again, playing God. <laughs> Beware of playing God. And uh, there was never really any deep discussion about what that meant. And for me, that was at least as intriguing as the content of these discussions. What would, what does playing God actually constitute in the context of 21st century scientific discovery and medical innovation? For me, there are two fundamental questions that, you know, I think people, when they evoke the phrase playing God in this context, <coughs> they're, they're, they're raising issues about what does it really mean to be human? Because after all, <laughs> there's a way to look at the, the uh, genomics and gene editing revolution. And you may, you may feel I'm exaggerating, but I don't think so. I think this is as profound as Copernicus and Darwin. I mean, you know, Copernicus and Darwin 
displaced humans from the center of the universe to some other location. But fundamentally, they were they were profoundly they were descriptive, and the ideas about how the universe and how the world and how nature worked. My take on genomic this genomic revolution is it fundamentally displaces or at least has the potential to displace humans from our privileged location as the dominant and species on the planet because these this these gene editing things raise questions about mm. you know what does it mean to mix <laughs> human genome with other species that we would have previously called inferior what does what does the genesis how do we now interpret the genesis text around being formed in the image of god right and being stewards of the earth in the context of a science which in one sense could we could interpret as well we're basically <laughs> just a bunch of malleable molecules that can be engineered and manipulated into almost anything. So what does it mean to be, and the, the uh, moral machines, you know, <laughs> the, uh, that yeah, raises again the question of what does it mean to be human? I mean, this is, this science is really unbelievable. I mean, um, there are all kinds of technological applications which are um, including the intermixing of biological parts with silicone-based parts mm -hmm. and again raising the question of, of what's alive and what isn't, what does it mean to be human, and what is our proper relationship to, uh, of creator man to God. So I mean I interpret the Genesis text around being formed in the image of man being formed in the image of God uh, to at least one could interpret that God as creator must mean that there's some there was some intent or meaning for man to be creator but what does what is the proper role of man as creator in this context and when our lines crossed. So all of this, when people conjure or evoke this phrase, playing God, these are the kinds of questions this raises for me. And then there's the whole, right, Prometheus myth and Frankenstein, right? You might remember that the title of Shelley, uh, uh, Shelley, well, Mary Warren Craft <coughs> Shelley's title of the novel in 1818 was Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus, right? Harkening back to the Greek myth Prometheus who created man, endowed man with reason <coughs> against the will of Zeus and was harshly punished for that, mm. right? Including being tied to a tree 
and have an eagle kind of pluck at his liver forever so he would never die, because <laughs> as his liver regrew, the eagle would come and pluck at him again. Frankenstein, uh, uh, of course, you know, Frankenstein was the name of the doctor, not the monster, but Frankenstein, if you remember the novel, read the novel, at the end suffers greatly he, 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 and, and regrets this creation. And this raises profound questions about <laughs> the cre man as creator, right? And uh, um, and raises, of course, a lot of caution. <coughs> and there are many, 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 right, follow-on stories. You know, some of the most profound science fiction today, really, is a retelling of the Frankenstein and Prometheus myth. So, I mean, you know, Jurassic Park, <laughs> 2001 Space Odyssey, right? I mean, this, these are all in some way retelling the, the, the cautionary tale of the Frankenstein, Prometheus Frankenstein. So, so when people evoke playing God, they're evoking this, this and, and, I, and often, but I would submit in kind of a superficial context, uh, this this cautionary tale about crossing boundaries. <laughs> um, so there's a, there's this really interesting um, program out of Arizona State University. I think it's called something like Science and the Imagination, and they have this really interesting conference called Spawn of Frankenstein. And if you if you uh, search the hashtag, it's alive. You can uh, get some of that material. It might be interesting. And one of the things that they considered in this conference was what does it mean to play God? Now, to me, this captured three things, again, that people usually are trying to evoke. Well, you're somehow remaking nature in a way that's inappropriate. However, I think it's clearly too simple just to say playing God is remaking nature because we were making nature all the time, right? And obviously, <laughs> uh, in particular, healthcare and medical interventions are all about remaking nature. I don't think any of us would think that discovering penicillin and applying that and making antibiotics isn't is in any way against what God would have intended for us to do. Vaccines are stopping disease, right? Create and remaking <coughs> nature in that sense. So we have to mean something more profound than simply remaking nature as what it means to play God. Uh, the Prometheus Victor Frankenstein story around the cautionary tales of creation. And in bioethics, it's really interesting. I don't know what your experience far has been, but there's almost when this has come up in, this, in the sphere of a lot of academic bioethicists that I'm around, uh, two things come up which are kind of condescending in a sense. One, one is, well, these people just don't understand. If they really understood the science of genome editing and the, 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 the the people who are at the forefront, the leaders in the field, they wouldn't be so worried and they wouldn't evoke or invoke 
this notion of we're playing God if they only understood more. So kind of dismissing uh, any, uh, some of the, I think, important claims or cautions around this. <laughs> you also get this sense also, too, of people will say, uh, my academic bioethics <laughs> colleagues. colleagues, you know, well, I can't take this invocation or this, this notion of playing God seriously because you mean there are people who really believe in God? <laughs> you know, so it, it's this sense of, um, you know, you know, not being able to under to see through a any sense that someone could be seriously interested and legitimately interested in scientific investigation, investigating the natural world, but still believe in God. So. Those are two kind of really interesting, um, my interpretation of uh, some of the conversations that I've heard around this. So, can I mention one more? Yes. Because I think another common way it's displaced as kind of interesting but not really the subject of reasonable dialogue right. or policy concerns is that, it's, that these are symbolic concerns. They're not concrete enough. This whole idea of playing God is, right. is not... It's not something we can we can measure. It's not something we right. know scientifically, which connects to your right. do you really believe in God. But right. this this idea that unless we're talking about the number of bodies killed, right. real harms we can measure, we're talking about a symbolic concern, which is a personal right. issue. Right, 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 and therefore yeah. not a legitimate <laughs> area of. Uh, for concern or investigation, or and can, that can't even be investigated. Um, having said that, I do think that if you read the literature, and uh, and particularly with respect to genomics, the genetic revolution, genetic engineering, in both religious and secular literature, uh, there are three kind of big themes that do come up as cautionary, as people expressing concerns that could fall under this realm of um, beware, which you're playing God, which is, you know, have you, have we really seriously thought through the unintended effects of science and technology? Because after all, uh, we are not omnipotent and, uh, uh, and all wise, and this is, in fact, the Frankenstein story, right? Or is there, are there moral issues in pursuing certain areas of scientific inquiry and application? I mean, you hear this theme in both secular and religious um, discourse, uh, particularly around genetic engineering. And this, and uh, the most, the best example of this for me comes up in the whole area of genetic engineering animals and people for to be better performers not to prevent disease <laughs> or to cure disease but to be 
taller, faster, smarter, if such a thing is possible. And uh, and both 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 secular and religious <coughs> philosophers, thinkers, and ethicists have expressed concerns about that. That that seems to be crossing a boundary, moral boundary. And you know, these just to, just to give you an example of how profound these things are, and how um, wise one needs to be in order to avoid <laughs> significant problems. You could take the case of the uh, uh, APOE gene mutation. Uh, APOE is a mutation of a gene that incurs a three to five-fold risk of Alzheimer's disease. We know that, very clear. And there have been lots of proposals to genetically engineer and cut that gene out of the human genome. Sounds like a reasonable thing to do. We could prevent Alzheimer's disease. What could be better? Well, it also turns out that young children with who express the APOE gene mutation are actually better cognitive performers than their peers. So what this is saying is that the APOE gene has the yes this marker in, in middle and older age incurs a greater uh, uh, increased risk of Alzheimer's disease, but the gene itself has something very profound to do with cognitive processing that we don't understand, right? And uh, when will we ever understand, so it raises the question, when will you ever understand something sufficiently to be able to intervene? Back to, I love science fiction, there's that scene in Jurassic World, right, the last one where uh, they made the dinosaur, the uh, Indominus Rex, right, a cross between the Tyrannosaurus Rex and the Velociraptor. And of course, again, <laughs> Frankenstein theme, of course, Indominus Rex is now wreaking <coughs> and is killing people. And the scientist says, and, and one of the things that happened is, because they crossed the DNA with uh, some lower amphibian species, they've added some DNA, this thing, this dinosaur can camouflage itself, which no one ever predicted. And so the scientist, of course, says, I never imagined. I could never have imagined, right? And that's the, <laughs> that's the big fear. I could never have imagined. And I was sitting there saying, yeah, you're not God. Why would you think you could have ever imagined every consequence of this um, intervention? And then there's social and political consequences of this discovery, which, if, which, which, which um, of these discoveries which relate to who has access, who will benefit, who will be harmed. And um, I guess that's not technically playing God in the sense that we typically think about it, except that when <laughs> we, if, we, if we believe in a God who is uh, cares for all, 
cares about social justice, is benevolent and, uh, and merciful. So I'm going to stop here for a second and ask you, when, when, you, when people ev evoke this phrase, playing God, what does that mean in your mind and in the context of something like genetic engineering and genomics and gene editing, where, where would you, do you, can you imagine, or what would you imagine as some intervention that actually does cross the line in terms of in terms of uh, an act, an activity, or an intervention that is remaking or manipulating nature in a way that was not intended by man. So, what does playing God mean to you? I've given you lots of my thoughts about that. What does it mean to you? Gets at what you're going, but I think of plastic surgery or mm -hmm. cosmetic surgery as kind of playing God outside of like the reconstruction, the re reconstructive sense. Where Why? There's a burn Why? victim or something. Um, so this is falls in the area of enhancement. Yeah. Right, but. Why per se? Why necessarily is that? Uh, I guess enhancement kind of is saying a message that what God, the way God created me is not right, what I want. So... Would you say the same thing about tattoos? Uh, but I can see how that can go there. <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, I mean, so, right, so you made a distinction between kind of the restorative plastic surgery, yeah. you know, people, right? Have had mastectomies, for example, yeah. and need to store versus aesthetic yeah. kinds of applications of plastic surgery, right? Um, but specifically within genetic engineering and when genomics, when can you what is there any activity that you can imagine or intervention that would clearly cross the line? Prenatal. I'm sorry, I didn't hear the last. Gender reassignment. Gender reassignment, right. I don't think that's But I mean, that. Right, right. But, um, <coughs> but you know, uh, you know, is it, would it cross the line to, you know, do prenatal diagnoses and um, discover that your child has a genetic disorder which is not fatal, but which would, well, cause significant disability, but not fatal, um, you know, would that cross the line to use, to, to then use this science and technology and, and then advocate for aborting their child, right? Those are the kinds of questions that people would would ask. I was even I was thinking more uh, kind of crazy stuff 
I mean, there are applications of genetic engineering in which you intermingle um, uh, species. <laughs> well, and you know, and now, that per se is something that humans have done all the time, right? After all, a mule is a product of two different species being interbred. However, the mule is sterile. It is possible to genetically engineer, I'm just making this up now, uh, it might be possible to genetically engineer a higher order primate with a human that would be sterile. And furthermore, I read a science fiction novel where that was done, and these, this, this new organism was created specifically to be slaves for people. Okay, that was the intent. I mean, they're not human, so are they? <laughs> they're partially human. Uh, now, I think everybody in the room would say that's an application that we could never support, right? Um, and that is, I think, in the most in the, in the most extreme form of what kind of people are conjuring up with this notion of playing God. Yeah, Brett. Uh, well, I mean, I just wanted to note that it is maybe not the kind of fantastical line that you're describing, but we're already doing it in terms when. IVF happens and we pick the better right. embryos. Right. And exactly. better is a amazingly vague word. Right. Um, and that's just going on all the that's time. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. Far. I, I have thought that you had to get your hand up. Well, just no, as sorry. a criteria, um, something that clearly benefits some at the expense of others. You know, so if a country was to create a, a group of super soldiers to then dominate other countries, or, you mm -hmm. know, Plenty of gray area, but that's probably a right. clear criteria. Samsung, right now, the giant making are making semi-autonomous, fully autonomous robots as soldiers to camp out on the demilitarized zone, South Korea. I mean, this is happening right now. Now, dent now. The question is, okay, so that's <laughs> that's happening. Who who? Who has, um, um, you know, the, the creators of such a thinking machine, because that's really what they're envisioning, uh, what responsibility do they have to um, um, over these units and um, um, to the extent that these kinds of machines are making decisions about who lives and dies. <laughs> um, is that kind of what people mean when that, might, you may be crossing a line about playing God? Yeah. So this, as this is a, I can talk about this as a, a theology and medicine and culture seminar, it's an interesting point to note that in the Catholic moral theology, um, if you don't do two things, it cuts out a lot of this. One is if you don't decouple sexual uh, sexuality and procreation so that you're, as you is required for most of the creations of the embryos, <coughs> fusing and creating new organisms, all of that is a kind of requires um, 
working on the generation of new life apart from sexual, you know, sexual intercourse of a, of a husband and wife. So if you don't do that, then a lot of this stuff falls away. And the other would be... But you do understand. But I don't that's understand just that. that's being done. That, that there are robots being made. Well, that they can't procreate, but that actually have sexual instincts. Wow, yeah. Yeah. So it's it is not persuasive to many people, but it does it is it does seem and like capabilities. But obviously not to reproduce. Not to reproduce. Yeah. Brave New World. It's brave New World. Or Westworld. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, your second thought. Well, the other was just that, you know, you can't you can't in, in terms of playing God, one thing you can't do is kill kill other human beings. Or intentionally injure them, and um, that cuts out some other things too. But it does. It's to, but that still leaves a lot of freedom to create robots to do but you stuff. Right. A robot soldier if it was a just war. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, that right. seems like that would be permissible if it was. Right. If it was used. I mean, right. essentially, we're using soldiers on these drugs. Yeah. I mean, uh, right. robots. Right. You can. Right. 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 So I, you know, I think when people evoke this term, they're, they're usually thinking about make decisions which were formerly left to God around life and death stuff, concerns about, you know, the unintended consequences of exercising this great human power. David Baltimore, who is himself a Nobel laureate and molecular biologist, said uh, biological systems are extremely complex and changing <coughs> human genes have unintended, undesirable consequences. He was concerned about using this for purely cosmetic purposes as something that would cross the line. And when would we ever want to use gene editing to change human inheritance? Now, having said that, <laughs> that is prohibited under current U.S. law and policy. But that is, in fact, happening in other areas of the world right now. That uh, people are doing germline editing of genes in egg cells, which then can be implanted, be implanted in a uh, uterus, and that then <coughs> you have an heritable gene. Uh, you have a heritable new gene for generations, right? So. We have currently prohibited that, but not the rest of the world. Does that mean we're falling behind? I, what do you think? I don't <laughs> falling behind we is a... We is have to be number one. I don't understand. <laughs> there was just a uh, meeting of the National Academies of Science in the United States, uh, the equivalent in Europe and China. They actually met in Washington, D.C. about a year ago, and they were questioning these kinds of issues were being raised. And the evoking of the term playing God kept coming up in that context. But who, so <laughs> how that gets then operationalized into policies and procedures and governance is, I think, a real question, right? Um, so. So here's, you know, Jennifer Duodna, who's the inventor of CRISPR-Cas, 
uh, that's the gene editing technology. Uh, probably a future Nobel laureate. And uh, to her credit, she has said, you know, we need to right now <laughs> uh, study and deliberate on the ethics of the use of this technology. Um, and uh, people have said, <laughs> well, are you Victor Frankenstein now and are you um, uh, concerned that you let the genie out of the bottle and now are <laughs> wanting to take back your creation? And she says no, which is, of course, she wasn't uh, interested. I actually give her great credit for really being out front on saying we have to have, understand, um, or have some construction of a, of a moral ethic around these tech, technologies and this science. Um, the gene editing consortium that I just mentioned, the ethical consortium, said these are their seven principles that they want to follow. Promote well-being, to be that is, these, this science and technology has to be used to promote well-being, presumably not to create biological weapons, right, <laughs> or things of that nature. There has to be transparency in who's doing what and how it's reported, due care, responsible science has to be done, respect of persons, and when does a um, embryo or fetus become a person is a question here in this. Fairness and uh, transnational co cooperation because people understand that this, this is going on all over the world. It turns out the FBI now has a unit <laughs> which is inve which investigates people who are buying genome editing kits. You can now buy a genome editing kit for under two hundred dollars. Mm. There are genome editing experiments going on in high school biology and college biology classes. And uh, it just gives you a sense of how, <laughs> again, the brave new world here is that this is not something that only scientists at Duke Medical Center <laughs> have access to. Literally, people in their kitchen sinks who are smart with a biology or chemistry degree, bachelor degree, can uh, edit genes now. So, um, Brett uh, made me aware of an essay that uh, the late Alan Verhey uh, wrote called uh, Playing God, Invoking a Perspective. And um, I would commend that essay to you, uh, recommend that essay to you. Um, I think um, one of the things that I liked about the essay is that, uh, that uh, as is just typical for Alan, he's very wise and thoughtful in how he thinks and writes about these things. And 
raise the question of, well, when we uh, invoke the phrase playing God, we could actually say that evoke it in a positive way, invoke it in a positive way. If we play God the way God plays God, which is to be a you know benevolent, a healer, and uh, one who is concerned about um, the um, uh, fairness and appropriateness and uh, uh, the uh, benefits being accrued to all mankind, not just a few. So, um, you know, I see, I see this as getting back to a little theology here in the last few minutes. So, for me, the thing that I find kind of helpful in my thinking are, you know, okay, so how, do, I don't mean to be sacrilegious or disrespectful, but, but, you know, what would it mean for us to play God the way God plays God? which is to take seriously the commandment to be good stewards of the earth as uh, written in Genesis 1.26, to be humble and wise in our uh, use of, of science and our creative abilities. I like Psalm 19.12 here. Uh, who can understand his errors, cleanse me, cleanse thou me from the secret fault. So being able to seriously uh, interrogate one's own errors, failings, um, and um, imperfections is, is a critical part of, I think, humility and acquiring of wisdom, which is required to, um, I think, morally uh, pursue the kinds of science and technology that um, we're talking about here, in, particularly in gene editing and artificial intelligence. Um, James 3.17, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good from impartial and sincere. So seriously taking account of, um, of the commandments to be just and merciful. Uh, and of course Matthew 25. Now, I, that is care for the least of these so, I think there is, I think it's very important for us to be, to, to thoughtfully consider um, the kinds of, uh, the implications for the kinds of science and particularly in the genetic engineering realm and artificial intelligence, but in all areas of science that we will be faced with and what it will mean for our world. Our uh, writers and storytellers, uh, of course, are an important aspect of this conversation in society. But it's interesting, uh, I actually, at one of the Hastings Center's conferences, talked to a woman named Nancy Kress, who was a scientific, science fiction writer. 
and she's very thoughtful about this. She, she's actually wrote this, a novel about uh, gene editing application where there was a uh, uh, part of humanity that had a gene that, would, that actually allowed them to live their lives without sleeping. And of course, <laughs> they were uh, much more productive than the parts of humanity that had to sleep. And uh, eventually, uh, it was such an uh, advantage that they gained an evolutionary advantage and began and dominated the world for the most part. But there were still people who still had to sleep and they became the slaves of the people who didn't have to sleep and could be very productive. But I asked her, I said, you know, why is it that when writers and, and uh, creative people in our society think about these questions, it's always kind of dystopian, negative. <laughs> you know, it's never about, you know, curing Alzheimer's disease. And it, her interesting, the interesting thought was, that she had was, well, you know, I started out my novel. I wanted to have this, this be a really good thing that we would, this would be an advance for all of humankind. And then my editor said, no one would ever read that because it isn't, it isn't, there's no conflict and uh, it's kind of boring. So, uh, so she thought that there's a real limitation in terms of, uh, of using or looking at, at uh, arts, particularly, well, using at some of the arts to try to expand our imagination about um, how we should be thinking about this. But nonetheless, um, I think they're looking at the creative arts and is is a way, right? Obviously, there's some there've been many writings that have been quite prescient in terms of predicting what's happening. So I guess my thoughts are let's be thoughtful about what we mean when we say playing God. I think there is a sense to me that you can that we can talk think about playing God in a way that's kind of positive, right? If we are if we are playing God as Alan Verhey put it, the way God plays God, to be kind, benevolent, merciful and um, and creative. So it's five to one. Let me stop for questions. We still have a few minutes for questions and comments for Dr. Payne. Yeah, yes. Look, thanks. Um, so one thought I've had is that it, it seems like this. I'm wondering how much purchase this kind of challenge or consideration about playing God has for folks. Um, I'm thinking of like Julian Sebalescu or Nick Boston or others for whom they want to say that, yes, we have a sort of evolutionary responsibility to play God. And so playing God isn't even an objection. It's a sort of moral, um, yeah, like responsibility or motivation. I'm wondering how that relates to this discussion as we reflect theologically. Um, yeah, in, in conversation with others who have very different theological assumptions that they're starting with. Right, right. No, I think that that's... That, that we, I do, as I read and reflect on scripture, and um, I think we do have a responsibility as 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 
creatures <laughs> created by God in the image of God to, I think part of what that means is that we have a responsibility to advance, to be creative in ways that advances flourishing in the world. And when we talk about human flourishing, part of that is, is right, a critical part of human flourishing is health and being um, um, creating and advancing um, science and medicine in ways that promotes human health. That would then, uh, that certainly has implications for how the world and the universe evolve. So I do think that that is, there is um, a part of what it means to be created in God's image that endow, that, that actually endows us with a responsibility to advance science. I don't know if that is answering your question. Well, I'm thinking about, too, um, Yuval Noah Harari's book, recent book, Homo Days, in which he talks about how um, how this sort of responsibility to um, take on this role of, that has traditionally been assigned to God. I mean, of course, he doesn't believe in God per se, but that that he believes that will entail all of these sort of many of these kind of catastrophic things that we've described, like many people being left out and there being this sort of evolutionary move away, oh, all these things. I see. And so, I guess what I'm saying is there appear to be some folks, at least, who will take this we need to play God and say that will entail a lot of suffering for a lot of people, right. and that just needs to happen. We need to get on with that. And I'm wondering how your perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I haven't thought that through, but I guess my first thought is that in the, that the natural world, if left to its devices, uh, is full of lots of suffering, right? Or or induces a lot of suffering, or right? And 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 part of our responsibility is to attend to that suffering in healthcare. But I think so. The question would be. Would we see it as <laughs> playing God the way God plays God? If we, if I'm, if I'm reading your question right here, if we pursue or or do it under kind of an ethic that we're going to tolerate and we're going this, the, those left behind and the sufferer and people who are going to suffer for the sake of a greater good. Now that gets to speak to a utilitarian. Calculus, and I just fundamentally believe God is not a utilitarian. So I don't, <laughs> I don't buy. I, I guess I don't fundamentally buy that argument. But I want to want to understand it a little better. Right. Thanks. More. Back to the Jennifer Douglas comment. Yes. Ethics. I'm always a little bit. I always wonder what's happening when somebody. Or when either a person or an organization that's heavily invested in a new technology calls for an ethic, it calls for a conversation about ethics around that technology because it structures the way that the questions are framed. So it's, it's mm -hmm. less likely to be yes or no. Like, is, should should this be something right. that humans do? And more likely, like, how can it be regulated? How can it be talked about? Like, what is it? How does it be labeled? Which is yeah. a very different way of thinking about. Absolutely, and 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 you're right to. 
to to uh, perceive <laughs> that that's kind of the direction that they're coming from as opposed to a broader, you know, is this right or wrong calculus. But I still give her credit for at least <laughs> having, now you might say it's a purely, it's really purely self-interested, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I want to give her a little more credit than that. But, um, but I mean, I, I, I hear, I hear what you're saying. I'm just wondering, from a, I mean, I give her lots of credit for her work, you know, but, but I mean, whether, whether, whether in your, whether there's ever been an example of an, of a, an ethics conversation like that that's ended with, actually, no, this really isn't a good idea for humans to. Well, they have said that. I mean, that, that conference, that, that, that governing body that met said, we do not know, well, <laughs> we do not yet know enough to recommend that there should be editing of the human uh, germline. That should not be done, the qualifier, at this time. Yet. Even more research today. Right. <laughs> so, um, Right. I guess I would, so what are the implications of saying, no, we will not do this at all, under any circumstances? Now, I think there are things that are, that, that in my view, are, ev are so evil that you can categorically say that, right? Does this fall into that category? I. Certainly there are applications of the science that I could see get pretty close to that. But I also think there's another, I guess when I'm, I'm thinking out loud here, Warren, as you obviously, as usual, ask an interesting question. Um, but I do think we have to carefully consider, you know, the negative effects of, of saying no <laughs> to science advances because again we're not so wise or knowledgeable unless it's a really clear bright line we're crossing that uh, we can understand all the implications of saying no. Tyler? Um, I, I just I'd love your advice on this question um, you know I struggle a lot I think this is one of those there are many examples of this but this is a chief example where Christians ought to have, and I think should do have, a very different view on sort of our end and than the rest of sort of you know, other people. So within our community, I think, and I feel when I talk about this, very much I'm a stranger to a lot of to people who have a different end of a view of the end of man. So um, you know, if if our, as a Christian community, our view of suffering and death are things that are, you know, ultimately being redeemed, and that there is sort of redemption at the end, right? Um, and so I think that loosens our normative need to relieve suffering, at least in some way. Um, but the practical, I mean, I, I don't know how to, so how does one, like at Hastings Center, which is an incredibly secular, it's, you know, a lot of secular, a secular organization where you're, Really, kind of using a different language. Like she's when she's when she's talking about let's create an ethical framework for thinking about CRISPR. She's not at, at, 
and says, do we want to be playing God? She means something totally different than when we would say, we want to create an ethical framework for Chris Gray. We don't want to play God. So what do you mean? That's different from what she means. Well, How would you articulate I don't know, that? Actually, I don't know her religious background, but I would imagine when she says playing God, she doesn't mean God. She means, I'm not sure what she means. Sort of some of the things we've been so talking about. What, what do you mean um, when you say God? Um, I mean, I, I mean, when I say I, I would want to play God, I think that there are, um, you know, constraints that as Christians we have to look to Scripture and tradition and, and our community to find to find these normative constraints, things we should and should not do. And I think those are should be bounded by, like you're saying, human flourishing. And I think you know people have been finding joy since you know three thousand years ago, where when all this technology did not exist, nor was it even fathomable. People were living pretty happily content lives, and now we have all these... Um, some people. Not and, all. And some people. are today. And there was also a lot of suffering as well that, yeah. and I would argue that some that people experience that I'm not so people no longer that, that this technology is doing much for suffering in the, in the way that I well, think these people would think it is. I mean, you know... Um, you guys. Well, I'm going to let I'm going to let the smarter people in the room. And I think this is an oh, important me, question. This is an important Red. question. Uh, so, but far, how would you address though? No, man, I guess I would think don't play God means uh, means at the baseline. It, uh, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't mean. Who? How, how would a Christian even know what it means to play God? Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus Christ. Um, right. <laughs> Except Jesus Christ. Right. Thank you. Um, so, in a way, we're of course should play God because we're called to. We're called to be made into uh, altar. I mean, to, to be made into Christ. I mean, to be right. made in Christ's image, and remade by Him in His image. So, in that sense, yes. But we shouldn't play God in the sense. To me, it just means don't do what you shouldn't do. Which. <laughs> Which, which brings all that, that tradition, as you say. By the way, I do think I want to say that there is no prohibition against religious thinkers, theologians participating in this conversation. Yeah. None whatsoever. And I think that actually, in, in a previous version uh, uh, of, uh, of a discussion about gene editing by the National Academy of Sciences, um, they specifically invited theologians and religious thinkers to the table. Uh, I would say that that wasn't the case where there was a specific invitation sent out, but there clearly is no prohibition. Uh, I mean, I think part of what you're hitting on with the whole human flourishing idea is whose understanding of what human flourishing is guiding this, which is what drives me nuts with generic bioethics. Like, what are we even talking about with fairness? um, But also what I think is different with a Christian bioethics is there, there should at least be some conversation of what virtues are needed to discern properly, what sort of pneumatology is needed. So if we're not playing God, if we're understanding, we're never going to have the view from up here to understanding the implications. Who has authority and who has the character corporately to, to be discerning to what extent can we partner with God? To dis- it's like, is this a good choice to make right now? without ever fully knowing the implications, but in some sense of trust of right. what, what are we discerning God's will is as, as we're seeking his face. Would you say humility is a critical virtue? Yeah, yeah. We have to have some sort of concept of virtues that can 
position us to be able to discern well and ask these questions well and receive answers. Right. They've got a question a long ago. I'm sorry. Yes. Uh, one comment about our future Nobel Prize winner. I think there was an interview <laughs> that she was a part of where she said after CRISPR Cas9 kind of was invented, she had a dream of kind of like a, I don't remember the details, but it was like a dream of her being part of sort of quasi maybe. I don't want to say Nazi, but very much like a scientific dystopian reality, and it scared the heck out of her. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's there's something so that, going on. That's good. Which is, which <laughs> In my very, view, that's just an interesting comment to, to, to what we talked about. That should feed into an a, a an, an ethic of 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 humility and and um, and caution. So is it just an interesting? If we want to discuss your motivations, but um, and this has already kind of already been addressed, so I guess it, not much to say. But conversations about God seems like we're talking about two different gods, um, and so this kind of goes with human flourishing too. It's just like it, and I'm wondering how our bioethicists in the room navigates that if you're talking past each other because you're talking about for Christians we talk about a God who accepts responsibility for stewardship, right. wants human flourishing, right. and cares about the poor. Right. And then for maybe more secular bioethicists, that's not the God they're talking about. So right. wondering <coughs> what that would mean for bioethicists, and if it's even a bioethical problem, it seems like it's another kind of problem um, about that. Right. Well, I, I think you're, you're right about that. I would just say that historically, you know, bioethics, there were great, there were theologians who were at the forefront of the early bioethics. I'm thinking about the Paul Ramses of the world. Alan actually gets and that Alan, phrase yeah, from, from Paul, Paul Ramsey. Ramsey. Right, yeah. right, right. Um, that's what, you know, I was kind of getting at when there, when I said that, you know, these kind of academic bioethics discussions kind of occur in this context. I mean, these people really think there's a God, you know, and so I, um, so I hear what you're saying, and um, I just think that the best way to kind of deal with this and address this is have as many voices <laughs> in the critical places, religious as well as secular non-religious, bearing on these societal questions around policy and perspective. Yes? So this is a, a little bit of a devil's advocate question. I would love to be able to pose it to Alan. Um, so say the state of Israel says, we recognize our vocation to be a called out people among the nations. We're surrounded by enemies. So we're in, uh, launching an uh, aggressive genetic enhancement campaign to be the people we're called to be. Uh, and through that, we will bless the nations. Um, uh, so, so, I mean, the, the question about Jewish identity versus other identities is very tricky. We don't really have to go into that. But, but playing God could involve invoking a certain notion of election. Right. American uh, thinks of itself that way sometimes. Right, <laughs> I mean, they don't right, and so that's in the water. Um, who, 
who is called out to be special. Right. And, and um, anyways, I just think that's a well a, a danger. No, that's a real danger. Yeah. And, and and for what it's worth, the secular bioethics ethicists, for the most part, have said that that using these kinds of technologies for purely enhancement purposes and is is wrong. Now, will that stop people from doing it and what? And, Not if the Lord's called to be a blessing right. among the nations. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or whatever. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think that's very, so I would see that as very problematic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does anybody want to make the case for an aggressive program of enhancement to be a blessing to the nations? I feel like things are not even sleep. That's not good. Yeah. <laughs> but trying she, to self-transform. Yes. <laughs> Tyler. Can you say one? So just kind of back to your point. Really like, I, I get frustrated with bioethics a lot because I think we, um, you know, a lot of feminist bioethicists have critiqued that the two main thing, the main thing people think about is issues of genetic engineering and issues of euthanasia, you know, positions of suicide. Those have dominated the bioethics literature. Um, yeah. As and opposed to things like fairness, justice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, you know, everyday lives, right. sort of ethics of everyday right. life. Um, and I think that, about that a lot because we have, yeah, these issues of just sort of how can we comport ourselves in the hospital how can we, you know, be a friend? How ought we be trained? How, what kind of medical training should we have? And sort of, um, you know, it, made, it makes me think of when we, because so much of this is about suffering, the prevention of suffering, the, the extension of life. <coughs> we look at, you know, the recent long, long, uh, long-term studies that Harvard did showing what are the number one cause of morbidity and mortality among, among the older men, and it's not having friends, right? The one, number one predictor of living good life. Right. was loneliness right and loneliness is not going to be fixed by CRISPR right I mean and so this well so in Japan there's this very uh, active artificial intelligence program to create robots that would sit and care for people mm-hmm. now I don't. I mean, I'm just. Ta- I'm just saying. Yeah. It's like the, there's a kids movie recently, Big Hero. Have you seen that? Which is basically yeah. that. It's like a robot that oh, is yeah. this bully kids. Or friend. her. What's that? The movie Her. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. That's not a kids movie, but yeah. Like <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> same idea there. Yeah. Right. But I mean, I. I, I yeah. I, I, so is your point My that point not every every aspect of human flourishing can be solved by by science and medicine? Yes, I, mean, I agree. Yeah. I think that I agree. And that <laughs> our, our, we, we we obsess over some things that I don't know if we we ought to to right. the extent that we do. Right. Well, I, there there have been there have been <coughs> a a vocal minority of folks in bioethics who have been calling for a broader perspective (laughs) on engaging um, problems, particularly of ethical and moral dimension within healthcare than has traditionally been the case. 
we should wrap up. Join me in thanking Dr. Payne.